Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Madam Speaker, the American people are tired of getting a complete lack of representation from their representatives. Nobody in this country looks at Congress and says, wow, heck of a job, guys and gals. Well done. Who would do that? Would we do that? By the way, it does not matter who's sitting in the speaker's seat or who's got the majority. We keep doing the same stupid stuff. Now, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle have no problem with wide open borders endangering the people that I represent. None. And in my constituents are the ones left holding the bag. And the people in Texas are the ones left spending $12.5 billion. And my people are the ones who have six kids die from fentanyl poisoning in the school district that I represent. Now, I don't disagree with Congressman Chip Roy about the reality of not securing a border, the reality of overspending. I don't disagree at all. I am simply engaged in the real-life politics of the thing. If you want total intransigence, I'm fine. You got to be able to have the team together in order to do it. And that often involves numbers. And when you don't have the numbers, you grab what you can and you incrementally fight your way. You also have to take a look at a larger stratagem. What's the goal? What's the objective? Is the objective to win the game, keep the House, gain the Senate and the presidency? How's the best way to do that? Well, I would argue that the best way to do that is to not have a government shutdown. So, Congressman Roy, are we discussing strategy or are we discussing intransigence? Because I'm fine with both, but sometimes something will get sacrificed in the mix. What are you prepared to lose, sir? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Uh, We're talking about the the extending funding. This is now going to go through March. Uh, you've got uh, 77 to 18. That's the way it voted in the Senate. 314 to 108 in the House, which means, of course, all the Democrats are in favor uh, of, of, of this. Nothing. It doesn't change anything about the border. It doesn't change anything about Ukraine. It doesn't change anything about debt. We're just going on to go on. Chip Roy's point is, you got to stop and you got to do something about these things. There's no disagreement on my part. What is the fight you're willing to have? And if you say to me that Speaker Mike Johnson is not willing to have this fight, I'll say to you, then why the hell did we replace Kevin McCarthy? Because replacing Kevin McCarthy cost time, cost capital, and a couple of members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy, who retired. He's like, you know what? By the way, anybody who thinks this wasn't a giant, massive, world-class, USDA choice, F you to the people, to the Republicans in Congress? F these people. You're nuts. That's exactly why he left. You don't want me? You go figure it out. Later, Mikey. And I don't think he's mad at Mike Johnson. I mean, what is he? What if if it had been uh, switched and Kevin McCarthy was the new speaker, he'd be like, oh, I'm speaker. I don't really care what happened. Just put me down in a history book, please. I get the point. I get the frustration. Again, I want strategy. And I'm okay with a strategy of we're shutting it all down. Until we get border funding, we're shutting it all down. 
But you don't do that. You complain there. You don't go onto CNN and interrupt Representative Ocasio-Cortez or represent or interrupt Senator Dick Durbin and say, you people have to come to the damn table and do something about the border. Shut your mouth on CNN. Get your butt to work in Congress. You're not willing to do that, are you, sir? Now, maybe I have it wrong because you seem like a guy who's willing. But your party's not willing to do that. And you want to now convince the party. I'm only making the argument that maybe you can get there through incrementalism until you have the team together and win elections so you have a much larger majority to be able to do what you want to do. I want to engage a strategy. And right now, I don't think Republicans have one. And if you want intransigence, are you willing to lose elections to get what you want? Because if not, well, then intransigence doesn't work. We'll discuss more of this, guys. I promise this is going to become a big conversation in the days ahead. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Divisional playoffs coming. The NFL, they're actually some excellent games that are going to be taking place. I was going to talk about them just randomly. You know, what do I think? Uh, You know, as a guy who... Uh, spent a, a lot of years in Tampa Bay. Do I hope the Buccaneers beat the Lions? But the Lions have a compelling story. Do I want to see that happen? And then hope the Packers beat the 49ers so I can see the Lions in a home game for the NFC Championship against a divisional rival in the Packers. I mean, that's better than the Super Bowl. That would be nutty. And then how far can the Texans go when you realize that the Colts should have been in that position and they weren't, and that's a whole nother story. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. And then I caught two other stories that I thought needed our attention, including what the Pacers did. Last night, I bring back JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana from 93.5-1075, the fan. I want to talk TJ McConnell. So you've got the trade for Pascal Siakam. You've got Halliburton, who's injured. So you're playing with this kind of mix-mash, mix-up, mishmash of a a, uh, starting lineup. And the next thing you know, McConnell's playing 33 minutes, scoring 20 points out of his head. Um, They beat the Kings. Talk to me about this game and what it says to you. No, what it says was it was the most important, or I should say impressive, not important, most impressive win of season. It did have a great level of importance, being that you're out west and you are undermanned, as you mentioned, too. No Nimhard last night. Jalen Smith was throwing up in the locker room before the game and I think during the game as well, but he still gutted it out and went out there. And Sacramento, Tony's a really good team. Uh, Darren Fox, Domus Sabonis, um, and at home, you know, still a part of that Western road swing late night. I don't know if a lot of Pacer fans went to bed, but, you know, what was really interesting is the Pacers controlled that game for most of the four quarters. And to be as undermanned as they were in that situation was incredibly impressive. And they got, if you wanted to see their rookies play, finally, Jarris Walker and Ben Shepard gave them outstanding minutes last night in Sacramento. I think Walker ended up with 15 on the night. And you mentioned T.J. McConnell. He was kind of funny, Tony. I always ha- often have to argue with people, uh, at least I used to, about the importance of T.J. McConnell. And I would always get, well, you know what, he doesn't really bring a three-point shot to the table. He's not that great of a defender. You could probably trade him as a backup point guard and get some kind of 
draft capital or future assets or some type of value, which has, as I've told you before, has absolutely worn me out. And I would always counter with, he is across the board essential to this team's success. And it may not show each and every night. Maybe his clock time is down one night. Maybe it's up because of injury the other. But he leads by stinking example every moment he is in there. And if that wasn't important enough, you saw it last night with his 20 points and into the teens with his assists. He was a dynamic leader last night. Showed it both off the floor and then showed it while he was on the floor. Again, proving why he is so essential to this team's success. And that was T.J. McConnell at the top of that list last night. 33 minutes. He was 9 for 14. 10 assists, 20 points on the night. You talk about Walker. He played 20 minutes. Uh, and uh, he had 15. Shepard, 28 minutes, had seven, so they uh, come off the bench for 22, topping with another uh, 10 there, so it was some solid bench play. Uh, if if you're somebody looking at uh, uh, Siakam coming in, looking at Halliburton getting back, and you realize what this team can do with its bench, you got to feel like th- that now, right now, the deep run is possible into the playoffs. True or false? You do. Well, no, no. I, and I would agree. I, I just think that the level, the bar, if you will, of expectations is raised with this deal. And I guess we're going to end up seeing Pascal Siakam in Portland later on tonight make his Pacer debut. At least that was the word that you heard, not directly from the Pacers, but bouncing around last night. You may even see Halliburton's return later on tonight in Portland as well. That remains to be seen. But no. The expectations are raised. There's no question about it. Like, they're not going to catch Boston, Tony. Boston's too good. Um, I got reservations about tossing in Philadelphia. We know how good they've been. Four out of five against Milwaukee this season. They can definitely, to me, expectation-wise, you could say they should be getting up there to the four-hole. They should be a team that can win, what, their first playoff series in 10 years right be in the playoffs for the first time in a long time too those expectations are absolutely there regardless of last night with that addition of Siakam again that's what you should expect and that in terms of what Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan have been executing they're going for it right now they eyeball the future and know they're going to get better but also they would love to win and deliver in the now and that's what this is all about so those expectations absolutely should be there Talking to JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana. Normally, I wouldn't pay attention to where an assistant coach from the New England Patriots is going. It, it wouldn't pay. I wouldn't pay any attention whatsoever. But when it's Bill O'Brien, who used to be the head coach of Penn State, used to be the head coach of the Houston Texans, then went over to New England and is now. Coming back to Ohio State, so we're talking Big Ten here, uh, to be running the offense for Ryan Day, uh, I, I I go into two uh, questions. First of all, Ryan Day still has the job as head coach? And number two, is this Bill Bryan like, giving up on a career? You've reached the mountaintop, and now you're back to being an OC in college? Or am I looking at that wrong? Oh, no. I, yeah. I mean, it's it, that's still a big deal. Um, and maybe he didn't have some some other offers out there. Maybe he didn't want to wait, Tony, for other offers. And believe me, at Ohio State as offensive coordinator, 
And that's the reason why they hired him. He kind of makes you wonder. You mentioned Ryan Day, why is he still there? Maybe one of the reasons he's still there is because he's going to give up, you know, the play calling and give up the offensive structure, a lot of it, and turn it over to Bill O'Brien. And that's why you pay him so much. I don't know what the price tag is, but for a name recognizable figure like that, that I guess would have if you waited some other options, I would say that it's pretty reasonable to consider that it's a lot of money. And, you know, it just kind of sounds like maybe, I don't know this to be certain, but it sounds like maybe in the background, all right, we'll go another year with this situation, but we're going to bring somebody in to help you out with an offense that certainly last year fluttered and sputtered more than it was executing the right way. So that's just my guess on that too. But now he's going to make a lot of money doing that. Then if you, if you help build your brand once again at Ohio State and they win and everybody points the finger at, you know, how you and your inclusion help this thing out, then once again, he'll go right back into the hiring cycle and, you know, hell, who knows, get a, another job in the NFL, offensive coordinator job in the NFL, head coaching job collegiately, who knows. But no, nah, this is not as bad of a step or a step down, Tony, as one might think. So now let's take it the other way. Exactly now how dangerous does Ohio State become and how much more impossible is the climb up to the top in the Big Ten for IU and Purdue? Well, if there was a word ridiculous, ridiculous lure, it would be, I think, appropriate right here. I mean, it's going to be ridiculous. We can create that word right now. We can just decide that ridiculous lure is a word. We can do this. I I, I was thinking maybe the Tony Katz encyclopedia may include that word. Yes, except it would be a dictionary, not an encyclopedia, but I will get you those definitions later. Oh, I haven't opened the book up since I was 12 years old. Tony, give me a break. But no, seriously, how are we looking at this again? Oh, we were looking at this in in terms of, yeah, ridiculous level of knowledge, Tony, is what he adds to this situation. It is like the term, the rich get richer. That's exactly what is happening here. The rich will be getting richer, and that's just what happens in college football with those elite-level programs, and that's what you're going to see in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, it, 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 It drives me crazy. It's national championship or nothing. I mean, seriously, it is. That's that's what that, like there is such a different level for teams like that. National championship or nothing. And I'll give you a great example too. All right, of offensive coordinators that just occurred to me. Todd Munkin, who is the offensive coordinator, had a great season in Baltimore this year with Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. He was before that the offensive coordinator and had a great deal of success, obviously at Georgia. So those steps from OC in college to OC in the NFL to even coach in the NFL are not as broad as one might think. I'll move off that subject. We'll dig into that another day, I think. Talking to JMV, the voice (laughs) of sports in Indiana. Uh, Let's just take a look at these NFL playoffs because I think these games are – three of these four games I think are excellent. Uh, You've got the Packers at the 49ers, you've got the Buccaneers at the Lions, and you've got the Chiefs at the Bills. And I think out of the high profile, you've got the Chiefs-Bills game being the high profile game coming on Sunday. This Saturday game, the Texans against the Ravens, uh, you realize, A, this clearly could have been the Indianapolis Colts. And then you realize, for as absolutely remarkable as C.J. Stroud has been uh, at the tail end of of the season and in, in that first game in the playoffs, a guy you would have picked in the draft over anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. The Texans are not a match for the Ravens. And of all of these games, this is the one that has the potential to be the biggest blowout. No, you're right. And we saw a lot of blowouts, Tony. You look back to Wild Card Weekend. Um, what was there, like one close game? Maybe another, but uh, it was mostly a lot of 
a lot of couple score games in that wild card weekend. So yeah, this is this is something that you would like to see the Texans keep manageable. But I think they can, and here's why: is because their rookie quarterback that you're talking about, C.J. Stroud, has not been making mistakes. And if he continues to play at that level of mistake-free football, you know they haven't figured out how to check Nico Collins. It's not like Gus Bradley and the Colts were the only one. It was just like most embarrassing for them with what they gave up. But, I mean, Nico Collins went off against the Browns last week. And remember, Tony, what we talked about, the Cleveland Browns, what they had with Miles Garrett up front, you know, what they have in that secondary as well with playmaking ability. Nico Collins still got up and got on them too. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, again, with a good decision-making quarterback, which they have. And they also have right now, Tony, you're watching this, a very opportunistic defense, uh, taking advantage of situational defense. We saw the Colts do that in Baltimore going back early in the season, if you remember, too, and beat the Ravens there. But this Texas defense all of a sudden is playing a lot better, a lot more confidence right now. And that's what happens when you win a game like they did a couple of weeks ago against the Colts. That's what happens when they win a game in the postseason as they did last week. You see the defense getting that uh, confidence going, and you see a quarterback that is leading off the field and then leading on the field by example as a rookie, which even even with what I thought he was going to be, he has far outkicked the coverage in this rookie season. Just so impressed. So let's now take these four games. Let's get me some winners. Let's start with Ravens-Texans. Ravens-Texans. Uh, I think the Ravens end up winning that. I think I picked uh, 27 21, I think, is the final Ravens over the Texans. But I think the Texans keep it close, one score-wise. 49ers, Green Bay in San Francisco. I think the 49ers, Tony, are going to roll. It may take them a minute to get up because these divisional rounds, if you send it out in a wild card, it takes you maybe a quarter or two to get kick-started. It may take a minute. The game may be closer than what we think, but ultimately the Niners are going to win this. 28-20, the final. The Detroit Lions in their second home playoff game against a Baker Mayfield who's been playing out of his head and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Much like their number one fan, Eminem, the Lions will lose themselves in the moment and get that win and march on to a conference championship opportunity over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, evidently a place where you spend a lot of time and you still have a great deal of love for the Buccaneers. It's going to be the Lions. They're going to lose themselves in the moment. Look at you. Look at you with the Eminem reference. You're so street. That's what they say about you, JMV. You're so street. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the Kansas City Chiefs having to travel to Buffalo. It is the first time Patrick Mahomes has played a playoff game not at Arrowhead Stadium that wasn't the Super Bowl. Crazy stat. Yeah. I got uh, I got Buffalo winning that. In fact, I have the Niners and the Bills in the Super Bowl because I always take one wild card team. I always think it's very important to get a little momentum wild card round. I think we've seen recently that happens. So I, I picked Buffalo going all the way to the Super Bowl. So they're definitely going to beat Kansas City um, this weekend. Um, it's going to be a lower score. There's going to be a lot of snow. Maybe not as much snow in Buffalo that they got to shovel out of that stadium as it was last week. But make that final 23-20 to 20 Bills over the Chiefs. That is JMV. He is the voice of sports in Indiana. We'll see if you're right next week. JMV, <laughs> thank you. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. 
The work that William Jacobson does at Legal Insurrection, LegalInsurrection.com, I've been following for years. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Find everything I do over at TonyKatz.com. And I, I follow it because there, there's a level of intellectualism uh, that's happening that's worthwhile. There's also stories covered there that don't get covered anywhere else. They simply do not. But it is William Jacobson's push uh, in, in exposing what DEI is doing in a whole host of places that really needs to be addressed. So when I got my emails, I get emails uh, from them, from EPP, a project he has called the Equal Protection Project uh, about DEI and about New York, the state of New York and the STEP Act. I knew that this was a subject that wasn't getting enough play and needs to get more play. William Jacobson joins me right now. You know him from LegalInsurrection.com, Cornell Law Professor. His work also includes the EqualProtect.org, the Equal Protect Project. Uh, this I, sh- I should be clear, sir, that this has gotten some play. Uh, uh, a series of websites have discussed this uh, as this lawsuit has just broken. You're suing the state of New York, I believe with the Pacific Legal Foundation, Talk to me about the basis of this lawsuit. Yes, we're challenging what's called the STEP Act in New York, Science Technology Entry Program. It's actually a very good program. It serves each year about 11,000 7th to 12th graders to introduce them to science and technology. They take uh, classes or not really uh, classes, but courses, uh, programs at up to 56 colleges and universities in New York state. So the state pays the colleges to do programming for seventh to 12th graders to introduce them to science and technology. So far, so good. The problem with the program, which has actually been around for almost 40 years, is that it discriminates in its eligibility requirements on the basis of race. Right in the regulations for the, the statute passed by the Department of Education, if you are black, Hispanic, or Native American, you are automatically eligible to apply. Remember, we're talking about high school and middle school students here, automatically eligible. If you are not one of those categories, meaning you're Asian or you're white, or maybe there's some other category, you have to show economic hardship, which is a very uh, high hurdle to get over. You basically have to show that your family lives at the poverty level. Uh, So if you're from a middle-class Asian family or an uh, upper-middle-class white family, you actually cannot even apply for this program. And that's discriminatory. We believe it's illegal. And on behalf of an Asian parent, Asian-American parent, and three Asian-American civic groups in New York State, we have filed a federal lawsuit in the Northern District of New York challenging not the whole program but challenging the discriminatory provisions of the program right so so it's it's fascinating how this often happens right the program itself you look at and you're like that has a value you if we're we're talking about encouraging math that's great especially in a society as we've seen and, and you've discussed many times sir uh, that you'll see groups like in California and other school districts do away with advanced math, do away with uh, gifted and talented programs because it makes the other students feel bad, which is, of course, its own level of discrimination. But it's, it's you're talking about here how DEI, 
works as a discriminatory factor. Talk to me about not only in this program, but in other programs that your group, EqualProtect.org, has looked at how DEI engages and actually promotes discrimination. Well, remember, this program existed long before uh, what we commonly now call diversity, equity, and inclusion, but the concepts were the same. The concept was that it's okay to discriminate against certain races to help other races to achieve some sort of balance. Uh, And that concept has been around for a long time. It's now expressed as diversity, equity, and inclusion, but this New York State program has been on the books for almost 40 years. Uh, And and so we have challenged similar programs. It is a very common construct that you have different eligibility requirements where certain races, typically African-American, Black, uh, Hispanic, are automatically eligible for something, whereas people who are not that, who are not so-called BIPOC, uh, have hurdles to jump over. And you can't have different standards for different students based on race. That's not lawful. Uh, But that's very common. And and at EqualProtect.org, we have challenged, I think, 20 of these programs. Before we filed this lawsuit, we actually challenged the program's at seven medical schools in New York State who were implementing the STEP Act. The argument being it you can't take state money and say, oh, well, we're just going to administer it in a discriminatory manner because that's what the state requires. Well, no, you don't have to take the money. You don't have to have these programs, but you don't have the choice of taking the money and then discriminating. So we started by focusing on the colleges got a lot of publicity, or I should say the medical schools, got a lot of publicity for that. uh, And that has evolved into this federal lawsuit. And that's typical of what we do. We we want to take down the systemic racism that has been injected into our society through DEI. uh, And that's what our goal is. And if we are successful here, and, and I think we should be, we will have impacted tens of thousands of students in New York State and 56 colleges and universities who will no longer be able to discriminate. What's fascinating, I think, for a lot of people, talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com and EqualProtect.org, EqualProtect.org, be sure to check it out and be a supporter, is that very often we see this bigotry, and I, and I of course, agree that DEI is bigotry in, in, in its foundational uh, methodology. But people often view it as a black-white construct. But yet so many of these occasions involve Asian parents and Asian students. You talk about how Harvard doesn't allow admissions and basically states, we have enough of your kind. We want another kind. And, and so that this was Asian parents sue New York State over discriminatory student programs with help, of course, from your uh, Equal Protection uh, Project, EqualProtect.org. Does this ever connect with people in a, oh, wait a second, this isn't what we're told it is. This is something far more detrimental and, and my word, devious. Well, you know, one of the things that really jumps out at me in looking at these programs, and not just this program, programs at many colleges and universities, is these are entities that have enormous bureaucracies devoted supposedly to preventing discrimination on the basis of race, yet they have programs that openly do that 
and nobody says a word. How is it that nobody at the New York State Department of Education said, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we need to change the program. How is it that nobody at any of these 56 colleges and universities says, hey, you know, we got this money, but it's going to require us to discriminate on the basis of race. And we have all these rules and these policies that say we shouldn't be doing it. But nobody apparently speaks up. This sort of thing has become normalized in our society. It's become worse with the advent of DEI and critical race theory, but it's been around for a while that certain types of discrimination are have become normalized. And it's not the discrimination we hear about. It's not white supremacy. These are programs that discriminate against people on the basis of race who frequently are Asian and frequently are white. And I think as a society, we have to say enough already. And I think New York State Department of Education needs to do its own internal investigation as to how nobody ever spoke up about this. Or maybe they did. And that would in some ways be worse if someone spoke up internally and it was chosen to be ignored. Uh, I'm going to turn a, a half a, a step here and people should go to equalprotect.org and learn more about this and support what it is that you're doing and, and more of this bigotry that we're seeing in terms of the anti-Semitism on college campuses. This was you from legalinsurrection.com window dressing day after congressional letter threatening funding Cornell condemns student social media post that quote Zionists must die and and for the sake of of definitions a zionist is somebody who believes that israel has the right to exist and right to defend itself and i state as freely as the day is long uh, i'm a zionist uh, so this from your university how did this uh, come about and how is it being taken on the campus everybody remembers that congressional hearing with the presidents of harvard who's now gone upenn who's now gone mit who seems to be hanging in there uh, where they were just unable in any coherent manner to condemn or describe uh, the actions of students on their campuses, which I think are fairly characterized as anti-Semitic. And they really <clears throat> flummoxed it. <clears throat> Cornell's president was not at that hearing. Maybe she'll be at a future one, I have no idea. But uh, Cornell came under a lot of heat because of things that happened at our campus. A uh, well-known professor, giving a speech to a large gathering just off campus, which included a lot of students, where he said he felt exhilarated on October 7th when he heard of the Hamas attack. Um, uh, you know, a, a student who threatened to shoot up the kosher dining hall and is now in federal custody. I mean, he's been criminally charged. Um, and protests, students chanting for an intifada, which was the bloody suicide bombing campaign against Israel. So we have all this stuff going on. And Cornell come, came under a very big spotlight, even though the president wasn't at that, that hearing. Well, what happened is uh, a congressional committee, I think it was Ways and Means, uh, sent subpoenas and sent a letter to uh, four universities, the three who were at the hearing, plus Cornell. So Cornell, according to Congress, has been elevated into this infamous elite group uh, with uh, MIT, UPenn, and Harvard as something that's warranting congressional scrutiny. And the letter basically said, we're investigating you. Here's the records that we want. By the way, uh, you are receiving federal funding, you're required to comply with federal anti-discrimination laws, and you are a 501c3, a tax-exempt entity. 
And it's not clear to us that you're complying with the requirements that, um, you know, to get that funding and to maintain that status, which of course is like, you know, a death threat, practically a corporate death threat. If you lose your right. tax exempt status as a university, you're gone. Um, and, and, and what the letter said is that, you know, uh, we are concerned that you have not forcefully condemned, you know, anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, on your campuses. That letter comes out the next day. I and the rest of the campus get a mass email blast from the president of Cornell University condemning what some student, unidentified student, but I believe it is a student. And I think I know who the person is because it's been circulating, um, but condemning the statement of this person. And to me, that just say, sounds like window dressing. You get a letter from Congress putting in issue your 501c3, your nonprofit status, putting in issue your federal funding, telling you you've got to start condemning uh, what may be First Amendment protected speech, but which creates a hostile atmosphere on campus. And all of a sudden, this administration, which has been uh, received enormous criticism for being lackadaisical in how it's responding, all of a sudden, within 24 hours, there's a mass email blast to the whole campus condemning this statement. Now, the statement, as far as I can tell, was not made on campus. The statement mm -hmm. was made on some students' personal uh, I think it was Instagram account. And, you know, so it seems like window dressing that Cornell, the, the, is, their feet are being put to the fire by Congress. And now all of a sudden they're going to be hyper vigilant so much that they almost become internet hall monitors of what students are doing. And I think that raises, you know, real questions and real, real concerns. I obviously don't approve of that statement by the student. But the Cornell reaction struck me as window dressing. Well, the other part of the reaction, while well, we've got about 60 seconds left, so William Jacobson, Cornell law professor at LegalInsurrection.com, uh, is, is the idea that it took Congress to act to get Cornell uh, to act. But has anything on the campus changed? Have students started standing up to the bigotry of the anti-Semites? Have the anti-Semites grown in, in popularity or in numbers or in support? Uh, has the campus gone in one direction or another? Well, you know, I was off campus this fall. I was on sabbatical, but I obviously hear from people uh, what's going on. And I think it's viewed as by the students, by the Jewish students, as a fairly toxic environment. Can't say whether it's gotten better or worse. We've been on break for the last few weeks, the entire campus. This thing with the congressional letter came out while we were on break and the reaction. So I don't know that there's been much reaction, but I think it's fair to say that the Cornell administration seems flummoxed in how they're gonna address this problem. And they obviously don't wanna be the next Harvard, UPenn or MIT, uh, put in a congressional seat before a, a in a hearing, but I think that's probably where they're heading. Not because I have inside info, I don't, but Cornell is, has a problem and I'm not sure they're able to deal with it right now. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, and of course, EqualProtect.org, EqualProtect.org. Sir, always a pleasure uh, to have you here. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. I wasn't kidding. Nikki Haley is doing some of her best work over the last 48 hours. Some of her very best talking points have come over the last 48 hours. Trump says things 
Americans aren't stupid to just believe what he says. The reality is, who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Nikki Haley will win every single one of those back for us. You can disagree, but as a matter of clear, concise talking point, it's some of the best work she's done. But how do you compete with a guy who's ahead of you by 13 plus points in New Hampshire and nationally is polling at 72%? 70 freaking two. I don't know. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Yes, the Messenger Harris X poll. Trump 72, Haley 13, DeSantis 7. I don't know what it is that you think is supposed to happen here. What? How do you think this works out? And the latest poll out of New Hampshire is the Boston Globe Suffolk poll. Trump 52, Haley 35, which is down from the St. Anselm poll, which was just the day before, Trump 52, Haley 38. So right now the spread is 13 to 14 points. That's the spread. Now, there's a, there's a whole weekend. You say to me, Tony, it's a, it's a weekend. Nothing's going to change. I, I don't disagree, but there is a weekend. And they're going to have it, and then they're going to have the primary on Tuesday. And we are going to we're gonna see. You think you can shake things enough to build a, build a gap? To, to close the gap for Haley? If it's not New Hampshire, where is it? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. That's T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z, TonyKatz.com. I'll catch you Monday, everyone. Take care.